are y'all getting ready for this big earthquake? And someone would fire this back at me. Do you remember everyone freaking out about Y2K? I have a crazy uncle who's into that preparedness stuff. It might be another 100 years before this happens. I had to really pause on this. And I saw for what it was. It's a cultural problem. We are in earthquake territory. People don't learn about preparedness from the Red Cross. People don't learn preparedness from emergency management. Preparedness is a behavior. We learn behaviors from each other. On today's episode, we're going to hear from Stephen Everling, a donor development officer at the American Red Cross and the author of Prepare Out Loud. Stephen will share the importance of establishing an emergency preparedness culture based on his experience with earthquakes in Sri Lanka and Klamath Falls, with the former responsible for claiming over 230,000 lives. Many reports predict an earthquake within the next 100 years that will greatly impact the Cascadia region, spanning from Canada to Northern California and the United States, with major implications for Vancouver, Canada, Seattle, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. Stephen will share the science behind these projections in the following audio excerpts from his talk at our Institute's Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response for the Workplace Symposia from this past fall in 2018. To hear the entire audio and past speakers, please visit the Outreach and Education section of our Institute website. And my wife and I worked side by side on the relief effort for one year. And then we came back to our native Oregon. And let me tell you what was interesting about coming back to Oregon in 2006. I'm a native Oregonian, born and raised in Klamath Falls. And when I left Klamath Falls, Oregon in 1996, no one was talking about earthquakes let alone subduction zone earthquakes. And then I come back in 2006, and what's everybody talking about? Subduction zone earthquakes that trigger big tsunamis. So what's the most culturally prepared country in the world? Everybody knows that, right? Where do you think you learn about preparedness in Japan? Do you think it's from Red Cross seminars? Do you think it's from your emergency manager tapping you on the shoulder, telling you what to do? Where do you best learn preparedness? from experience and from people you know. People you know, people you trust, people have actually gone through that. So let me ask you this. How many of you have gone through a subduction zone earthquake tsunami event? Two. How many of you have a close relative, mother, father, grandfather, coworker who have gone through that event, have completely changed their lives because of it and have shown you what they did? Okay, there we go. That's our cultural problem. Who of us completely flips our lives upside down for something that we don't know, don't understand, and have never experienced? Not many of us. The crazy ones start first. It's true. But in this case, they might be right. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna start with a baseline in understanding earthquakes and earthquake preparedness. The way I would start that lesson as your seismology teacher is I would tell you that the Pacific Northwest is not part of the United States. It is part of a much larger, more entwined neighborhood known as this. What is this? It's the Ring of Fire. And all these places along the Ring of Fire have a couple of basic important things in common, starting all the way down here in New Zealand. Beautiful, mountainous landscape. Tell me the second thing all these places have in common. Volcanoes. And giant mountains, and subduction zone faults, and water, and 
coastline and people and earthquakes. Hi, that was your seventh response, y'all. I'm here to talk about earthquakes. This is this, this is the definition of cultural reluctance. I swear to God, we avoid the topic of earthquakes like nothing. Yes. All these places have big freaking earthquakes. Alaska, 1964, 9.2. Yeah, you heard that right. Same earthquake, same day, 32 years apart. There's the Mexican Red Cross. Up to that day, a lot of the Mexican Red Cross actually had bound themselves in Houston, Texas, helping the American Red Cross out with Hurricane Harvey. That's how the Red Cross works. We help each other. The other thing that these places have in common, someone mentioned it, is they are along big fault lines where two plates come together. Most of the places we're looking at are touching the edge of the Pacific Plate. The interesting exception is Oregon and Washington. We're not touching the Pacific Plate at all. We're touching this teeny, teeny, tiny plate known as Juan de Fuca. Excellent. And the Juan de Fuca Plate is just like any other. If you were to get into a submarine and visit the border of the Pacific Plate and the Juan de Fuca Plate, 300 miles off the coast, this is what you're going to see along certain sections of that fault line. Check that out. Two, puzzle, two big old puzzle pieces. So here's the quick story of what's going on with these plates. The Juan de Fuca plate is moving in about one inch per year towards us, and over time it has created that. What is that? Cascades. Cascades Mountains, hence the Cascadia subduction zone. And the opposite side of that story is taking place with the Pacific plate, which is moving three inches per year in the opposite direction, over time creating many different things, amongst them the Japanese Alps. You see some similarities there, right? Same mountain range created by the same process, subduction, which also has the same side effect, volcanoes and earthquakes. Exactly. So let's take a look at what's actually moving these plates in the first place. We're going to slice the world right in half, starting down at the core of the Earth. Now you see what's happening here is you've got this column of magma, which is rising to the underside of those plates off our coast. And what's happening is those plates are being drugged by the magma and also by the magma being created at that fault line. The Juan de Fuca plate is sliding ever so slowly underneath our feet in the exact same way that the Pacific plate is sliding underneath the island of Japan. And that's not where it ends because the friction and the depth actually melts the crust above it and that crust comes back up as new landscape. Subduction created in Japan this. What's that? Mount Fuji, subduction created right here in Portland, not Hood. Subduction created going north, Mount Rainier, excellent. This one's really easy. Subduction created Mount St. Helens. And Mount St. Helens occurred in what year? 1980. And yet, and yet, in 1993, this is the earthquake hazard map that was being used by my 1993 geography teacher who said, and I quote him directly, there never have been and there never will be earthquakes in Oregon. That's 1993, Klamath Falls. What happened the next day in Klamath Falls? We had a six point earthquake. But bless my teacher, this is the map he was using with 
ever so suddenly states that we've got an earthquake zone that starts in Southern California, goes up to, to the Oregon California border, this disappears. <laughs> and then magically reappears as soon as you cross the Columbia River. <laughs> and listen, geologists were not stupid in the 90s. They've always known that this was a problematic map. But it took the work of people like Brian Atwater and Chris Goldfinger at OSU to give us this new and wildly unpopular seismic hazard map, which shows quite correctly that we are in one of the most seismically at-risk places in the world. Here is North America. Here is Juan de Fuca. And Juan de Fuca is pushing and pushing and pushing, but since they're locked, North America is bowing and bowing and bowing. It can only handle so much pressure. Eventually it collapses. And what happens then is a domino effect. This is a long fault line. And the weak spots along that fault line begin to give way. Now suddenly Juan de Fuca is sliding very quickly underneath the edge of North America, which is thrusting upwards. Now this is underwater, and so this is going to displace trillions of gallons of water at once, sending a wave that goes northwest, east, and south, and that gets larger in shallow water. So here's an important question for you, Portland. Should you have any concern about that big wave making its way all the way into downtown Portland? One, two, three. No! And there's very little good news in this presentation. So you take that piece and run with it, okay? This is good stuff. We don't have any tsunami risk here whatsoever. We're too far away. If you're not on the coast, you're not gonna see the tsunami. And you might wanna raise your hand and say, Steve, we're right next to the Columbia River. We're right next to the Willamette River. And the last I read, those rivers go all the way to the ocean. Won't the tsunami come all the way up the rivers? OSU studied this, and they found something simple about tsunamis. Tsunamis can't turn. Okay, so it's got to come a ways up the Columbia River, but as soon as it hits a couple of 90 degree elbows in the river, it sloshes up on shore, loses its momentum, and by the time you hit Longview, there's no tsunami left. What we are, of course, going to feel here is the shaking. Here's our fault line right here, 70 miles off the coast. Now, these yellow rings coming off that fault line, that's not the tsunami, that's the shaking. The first shaking that you're going to feel here is called a P wave. A P wave is a jolt. It's like a jackhammering under your feet. The P wave actually doesn't do a lot of damage. It's the moment you all look at each other and go, what was that? <laughs> and that is a warning of a much larger, more damaging wave that's going to follow. It's slower, and it's called an S wave. The S wave is where the land begins to move laterally. It's where the land begins to move uh, vertically. It's what does all the damage. And you're going to see that this is a really big earthquake. But when I say big, I mean big geographically. See, the San Andreas can't give way all at once from Southern California up to the north. Ours can. In the worst case scenario with a nine-point earthquake, it would impact Northern California, Western Oregon, Western Washington, and Vancouver Island, Canada, all simultaneously. That can't happen with a San Andreas. That's a big earthquake. And even though you haven't experienced a nine-point or an eight-point earthquake in Oregon, and neither of your grandparents, it's a fairly common event. There's record of 43 eight and nine point earthquakes along this subduction zone in the last 10,000 years, which on average comes to one every 243 years, which might prompt you to ask. Then the last one was January 26, 1700 at 9 p.m. on the dot. Here's the reason we know down to that precision of the last earthquake. 
This was a witnessed event many, many, many times over. If we look at the outline of the Cascadia subduction zone along the Juan de Fuca plate, we've got record of more than a dozen tribes going all the way from Northern California up to Vancouver Island, Canada, who have recorded shaking events followed by a high water phenomenon. That's one. For two, we have physical evidence. There are these things called ghost forests along the coast of Washington. What's a ghost forest? Well, a ghost forest is a cluster of hardy red cedar that for some reason has suddenly collapsed into the tidal zone to become inundated with salt water, which of course kills it. And they started taking tree ring samples of all these forests that are dozens of miles apart. And they had something really, really freaky and weird in common. They all died between September of 1699 and May of 1700. Hmm, what killed all these places at once? Tsunamis don't just go one direction, do they? They go all directions. Our last earthquake, January 26, 1700, 9pm, created a tsunami that went all the way across the Pacific Ocean to visit a country that has diligently tracked its own tsunami earthquake activity since 599 AD. And that country would be, if you're ever uncertain, the answer is always Japan. And they called this the orphan tsunami. Why? Why did they call it the orphan tsunami? Where was the earthquake? Exactly, where was the earthquake? And it was Brian Atwater who originally determined that that orphan tsunami pieced together with those ghost forests corroborated with the Native Americans have told us for 318 years solid. We are in earthquake territory. So how ready are we for this? During a shaking event, you drop, you cover, you hold on. You've all heard this a trillion times. Why do you drop the moment you feel shaking? Why? So you don't fall. It's all injury prevention. You take cover under anything that you can. Why? So nothing hits you on the head. We're worried about the stupid stuff like PowerPoint projectors and chandeliers, the things that you can control. And you hold on to whatever you are beneath. Why? Exactly. It's going to get away from you like an umbrella in a hurricane if you don't hold on. You drop, you cover, you hold on. This is simple, right? And you have to practice. And this is where the cultural reluctance really kicks in, because we feel patronized. That's why we try to get everyone to participate in the shakeout. And I know how people feel about earthquake drills. You're in your button up, you're in your slacks. First of all, during any earthquake drill, I want you to think about this mannequin and this bookshelf. That simulation gives you a good idea of how much better off that mannequin would have been had it been animate and able to get under that desk. The reason you have to practice drop cover hold is for one basic problem. You're probably not going to be alone during the earthquake. And that's a big problem because we oftentimes will infect each other with the worst behaviors. And we can look no further than Japan the most prepared country in the world for examples of this. Let's go to Japan, 2011, and take a look at some earthquake behavior. Okay, so it's just kicking off. We're obviously in a wine store. I want to point out that someone's recording this with their cell phone. There's the manager right there in beige. Not dropping, not covering, not holding. What is she doing? What is she doing? What is she doing? Yes! Listen, she's giving some pretty clear guidance on how to hold up the wine rack. Okay, there's one behavior. I have a feeling this guy's from out of town. <laughs> and he's looking for guidance in the cereal section because he does not want to become part of the local human wine buttress. 
Same earthquake, no one gets hurt in this video. No one gets hurt here. But I want you to look right behind her. Now, this is Japan. These are the most seismically ready buildings in the world. And even with these buildings, what you can see is the facade is peeling right off onto the sidewalk. And lots of people have happy feet, I think I heard the last speaker say, running into the most dangerous spot that they could be. And the reason you see these behaviors, even in a place like Japan, is because this is your brain on earthquakes. You see this part of your brain right here? This is your frontal cortex. It's the smartest part of your brain. It's the reason you've ever had a job. It's your frontal cortex. Your frontal cortex, it weighs pros, it weighs cons, it's very analytical, it's also very slow. And this is emergency, we don't have time for slow. We don't have time to check in with Deb at the front desk, what are you doing about this? No, no time for this. So your amygdala, the most explosive instinctual part of your brain take over. Your amygdala are fast, make fast decisions. Also, they're very dumb. Your amygdala during an earthquake is likely to tell you to do one of three things. They will tell you to, one, follow the orders of the most confident person in the room. You, wine rack. You, Pino. If the Red Cross dude gets cold feet during this scenario, if there's a real earthquake right now and I run for the door, what do you think you're gonna do? Yeah, because I, I hold the room right now. I'm the guy who owns earthquakes right now. If I get cold feet, you'll follow me. I guarantee it. Two, your brain is likely to do nothing. What this guy is really doing is he's looking through millions of years of evolutionary history, and he's realizing he's never been in a wine store during an earthquake. No, I've got no instinctual response for that. Nothing. Overwhelmed. More likely than that, three, your brain will tell you to start running to try to find a place where an earthquake is not occurring. None of your instinctual response are going to help you during an earthquake. And the only thing, the only way to really teach your dumb, dumb amygdala to do the right thing is through repeated physical practice. What do firefighters doing when they're not fighting fires? Practicing fighting fires because it's something you need to do scared. It's something you need to know how to do really, really scared. You're going to leave this room and you're going to go back home. You're going to go back to your office. You're going to go back to the places you spend time. And I want you to start identifying the big, chunky, sexy pieces of furniture that you want to be under. Those tables, start ingraining those in your head now so that they come to mind when it's time. If you don't have a table to get under, you're going to grab a chair. Chairs better than nothing. Cover the back of your head and neck. If you have a very small child, here's what you're going to do. Ooh, whoa, earthquake, earthquake, earthquake. Get safe. Oh, it's okay. You're a layer of protection over your child, but you're still seeking shelter for yourself, so you've got a layer of protection for yourself. And once your child is about three years old, start doing drop cover hold drills with them so you're ingraining those instincts really, really young. And this is my son, by the way, five years old. We're in the library, and no, I did not tell him to do this. He kind of does it spontaneously now, but <laughs> he does. That gives me a chance. It's like, okay, let me explain what my son's doing and what you should do as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he, he loves this. He's, he's dying for his, his dad's uh, approval and attention, I guess. Um, if you don't have anything to get under, you're going to do the best you can. I don't want to be next to a glass window. I don't want to be next to a mortar wall. I don't want to be under a PowerPoint projector. But I'm still going to drop down all the way to the ground to minimize the risk of falling. If you're in a wheelchair, lock those wheels at the beginning of the event, grab a book, cover the back of your head, and hold on. 
if you're in a theater, things get interesting. So first of all, what do you think people are going to do in a theater situation during a shaking event? Ooh, well, I think most people are going to run for the exits. Instinctually, I've seen videos. Everybody just goes, woof, which is dangerous, right? 400 people, three exits. That's a really dangerous situation. So you're not going to do that. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to look straight up, just like that. And you're going to see, oh, there's a chandelier there. There's a light fixture. There's a projector. And you're going to move five seats down to where it's clear. You say, Steve, that, that seat's not available. I promise, it's available. You can have any seat you want during this, okay? Choose the right seat, and then you're gonna take the brace, brace position, just like you're in an airplane. Okay, you ready? Let's go, earthquake drill. so much. Yeah. yeah! Yeah! Man, when I say thank you, I mean it, y'all. Um, doing that alone is so awkward. <laughs> so how long was that? It was one minute. It was one minute. And how long would a nine-point earthquake be? Five minutes. Good job. Good job. You expect the shaking noise. Okay? Did you expect the car, car horns? Right, all the car, there are going to be a lot of alarms because any system native to this building and all your cars in the parking lot, they're going to give out, right? They're going to start sounding off. The lights went out, so it's also going to be 100% darker. Here's what you didn't expect. All the, all the sprinklers are going off, too. So it's dark, loud, and wet. It's five minutes. Yeah, no, well, it could be smoke as well. It could be smoke as well, but it's going to be loud, it's going to be wet, and it's going to be long. I want you to think for a moment about why you actually participated. You did, you made a choice with each other to get under the table. Let's take a short break and consider how this exercise applies to your workplace. What would you do if you saw someone reacting to an earthquake emergency signal? Would you follow their lead? How about other emergencies like a fire or a workplace injury? Are you prepared? Are your coworkers prepared? Are you prepared to have a preparedness conversation with your coworkers or even your family? Let's hear more about how people act in an emergency and what steps you can take to make sure you are prepared. I want to explore the social chain reaction that took place with that drill because it's the same chain reaction that takes place in a real emergency. First, with any emergency, it starts with a leader. And I'm the anointed leader, right? And I hit the deck immediately. I think about 10% of you were on board with going on from the get-go. It's like, yes, this is what we do. And then maybe about half the room, you're just kind of looking, you're kind of feeling the water, right? It's like, I'm gonna go with the crowd. Most of us do, there's nothing wrong with that. You go with the crowd and it's like, wow, 15% of the room's doing it, and suddenly I find myself doing it. And about 20% of us, myself included in many scenarios, are the eye rollers. Oh God, I hate participating in group activities so much. Really, I, I don't do standing ovations. You're all standing and clapping, I'm like, no. No, I could have seen better. Once, once you see, though, 80% of the room completely and suddenly change its behavior, it puts a different kind of pressure on you, doesn't it? So the point is, Part of doing that drill is you are not only practicing creating muscle memory, you're practicing the social mechanism that reaches each person, right? The awkwardness of doing a drill 
And it feels awkward, right? The awkwardness is kind of uncertainty. Well, fear is uncertainty up to level 14. That's what fear is. It's an amplification of uncertainty. So practicing through the awkwardness is actually practicing through the fear mechanism itself. That's the other reason you do those earthquake drills. So I want to take a look at a little case study down in Gold Beach. Gold Beach is, of course, in southern Oregon and Curry County. Now, Gold Beach has a few things going for it. It's got the tsunami evacuation route signs, tsunami sirens ready to go. And on this particular day, two summers ago, when there was a false alarm with that siren, there was someone there who knew exactly what to do during a tsunami. And I can vouch for her. Kelly Ross has been through my training twice. And after this false alarm with that siren, she saw some alarming behavior and asked to be interviewed. Here's her story. So it was my birthday, so we were at Moon Beach, and we did a bonfire right at sunset, and all of a sudden the alarms started going off, and I freaked out. I was like, I dropped the hot dog, and I'm like, yeah, it's a And then I started looking around, and nobody was reacting. I mean, everybody kind of stopped. It was just, you know, on the beach, like the other dog, and they're kind of like, hmm. Then I looked over, and I saw a group that was firefighting, so I then ran over to them, and they were from another country. So I was like, what do we do? And they were like, we don't know. Part of me, I'm not leaving the beach, even though I know I should, was because nobody else did, so I thought maybe I was being silly. Take that in for a second. You've got a woman who thinks that she's about to experience a real tsunami. She knew precisely what to do. She's with her fiance, so she's got every reason to help him as well. And she started to do the right thing. And then she looked back. And all these Dutch tourists are not <laughs> reacting. And she got cold feet, and she came back, and she started talking to them. And they convinced her, basically, to underreact because it's cool, it's confident. And really, what you're looking for during any emergency is the comfort of reinforcement of your community. You're looking for reinforcement that you're doing the right thing. And so she chose comfort over safety. And that ticks you off a little bit, because you're like, I would never, ever do that. Listen, we're all looking for comfort in the most scary moment of our life. And the moral of this story is you need to make the assumption that people are going to, on a hair trigger, do the wrong thing. And despite that, you need to do the right thing because like any emergency, be it this earthquake drill that we just did, or that tsunami, it all starts with a leader who's confident, who can set off the social chain reaction to get everyone from the eye roller to the hot dog roasting tourist to do the right thing. It all starts with one person to get everything rolling. Every single one of my kids, and my wife and I, we have a discussion every time we go to the beach. I'm a lot of fun to travel with, by the way. <laughs> we take note of these signs. If you're on the beach, how do you know that you're at risk of a local tsunami coming your way? Where are you looking for is this sign? Tide going out. Tide going out. The water completely disappearing. In Sri Lanka, the ocean disappeared to the point that you could see coral reef trees. That's a low tide event, okay? That's one sign, but maybe your back is turned to the ocean. There's a much more clear sign than even the ocean disappearing. What is it? The earthquake! The earthquake! You just shook for five minutes. Tsunami's coming. 
I guarantee, I absolutely promise you, if you just shift for three to five minutes on the coast, a tsunami is coming. And at that moment, once the shaking is done, you've got 10 minutes. 10 minutes to follow those evacuation route signs, which is typically going to be put at 100 feet of elevation. You're gonna follow those evacuation route signs on foot, on foot, on foot, because people get trapped in their cars, right? Here in Coos Bay, a five-minute shaking event, what does that do to the road structure? It obliterates it. And, what, and to compound that, everyone's getting in their car because instinctually that's how we think about going fast. You've got to go on foot. And once you reach the evacuation site, you're going to remain there for the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and maybe the fifth tsunami. Once all the tsunamis have gone through, then the emergency manager will tell you, you can go back to the beach. And you will reply, no, thank you. I'm not. Are you? Did you see that? I'm not going back down there ever. Right? Then, but stay up there until someone gives you the all clear. Let's talk a little bit about preparedness. To understand preparedness and building kits, you have to understand what just happened to the infrastructure during this nine-point earthquake. So, to put it very briefly, this is where you are today. Right now, you are in the middle of millions of people who are seamlessly bringing you running water, flushing toilets, electricity, and gas heat to your home. And the things that don't come right into your home and business, you've got cell phones, cars, and debit cards to go get. Things like medical care, things like groceries. That's today. And that's pretty much every day of your life. And this is tomorrow, the day after an earthquake. Tomorrow looks more like this. After an earthquake, your operating assumption is that you are going to be stuck. You might be on I-84. You might be at home, you might be at work, you might be in Vancouver, wherever you find yourself, you're gonna be stuck. And worse than being stuck, you're stuck without those nine conveniences that you have almost uninterrupted on a daily basis. Now, how did we lose those nine things so quickly? Here's how. First of all, according to the Oregon Department of Transportation, any bridge built before 1975 <laughs> is not looking very ready for this earthquake. And yeah, we've got a couple. We got the Selwood, we got the, we got the Tillicum. We're excited about those. But where's your place in line to cross the Selwood Bridge after an earthquake? You're way in the back. They're going to be using those for emergency responders, for material. You're not going to get across the bridge today or tomorrow, I don't think, after a big earthquake. And when we lose those bridges, we also lose very quickly access to your car, to medical attention, and to groceries. Just like that, just from the bridges alone. Let's talk about liquefaction. You've heard about it so many times, this is what it looks like. You see, when you've got loose, silty soil, that is saturated with water. This basically describes the Willamette Valley, right? The earthquake essentially causes all those soils to compress. And it's like squeezing a sponge that's full of water. That water is not going to go down into the water table. There's no room there. It comes up. And as it courses through the topsoil, that topsoil becomes oatmeal, quicksand. This is Christchurch, New Zealand, 2010, 2011. This is what liquefaction looks like. It's like water coming out of people's backyards and pooling into downtown Christchurch. It looks like an inconvenience, but it's actually a lot more than that because when you build something on pudding, that something becomes compromised, such as the highways in Japan, a foot and a half in some cases, and that's just what you can see. Let's think about all the things that you can't see. From the liquefaction alone, we just lost gas heat, flushing toilets, and ruddy water. Just from liquefaction, just from liquefaction alone. 
And we're hanging on to just a few things. Maybe we've got electricity, we've got debit cards, and we've got cell phones by dint of generator power. But as has already been mentioned, 90% of Oregon's fuel is on a corridor that is going to liquefy. So we just lost those last three things. And at this point, we all get it. We say, holy crap. Yeah, you knock over a glass and you say, geez, we need a lot of help. We need help right now. And this is where the story, unfortunately, gets just a little bit worse, or maybe a lot bit worse, because this is not your earthquake. What you just experienced here in Portland, in the worst case scenario, is being experienced in Northern California, Western Oregon, Western Washington, and Vancouver Island, Canada, where the entire infrastructure is compromised. Steve, that's why we have PDX. No, because those runways are going to Liquify, once more. We are unfortunately relying on Redmond Airport. We don't want to fly Redmond, but we have to because its airport is ready. It is east of the Cascades and is likely to withstand the earthquake. And it's even worse in Washington. In Washington, they're relying on Moses Lake. No one knows where Moses Lake is. So now you can understand why Oregon Emergency Management and Washington Emergency Management are saying that if you live here especially, which is 85% of us, you need to be ready for at least, at least two weeks before we see a response. Why that long? You can see it. I don't even need to explain it. Aid is delivered through infrastructure and the infrastructure is gone. So we need to be ready for a long time before we see any help. And the idea we bring to you is essentially you need to be ready to camp spontaneously in the three places you're gonna find yourself. If you're ready to spontaneously camp at home, in your car, and at work, you are ready for earthquakes, you're ready for power outages, you're ready for winter storms, you're ready for anything that nature can throw you. Earthquake preparedness is the PhD level. It gets you ready for all the associates, associates level disasters that are gonna strike before that big earthquake does. And I've got tons of information on the back table on the 38 trillion things you can do to get ready for an earthquake. You're going to see those in your prepare guide. The idea behind this prepare guide is you are essentially putting together items that help you replace the nine services that you lost by dint of this earthquake. Things like gas, heat, electricity, debit cards, groceries, cell phone, cell phone, flushing toilets, running water, not having a car, and medications. All those things are, are going to be in your guide on how to uh, get through that scenario. At home, we need to make sure that we put all of those things into one accessible place. This is all of our water, all of our food, all of our clothing, all of our material for my family of five in our shed in the backyard. If not your shed, put it on the, put on the main floor of your home. Do not put it in the attic. Do not put it in the basement. Do not put it in the basement. I know you want to put it in the basement. I know you've put it in the basement. I understand why. It takes up a lot of room. Get it out of the basement, because if your house ships off the foundation, those basement stairs don't go to your basement anymore, right? So we need to make sure we put everything in a very good, accessible place. For the last three minutes, we need to talk about the thing that we do not do. I think a lot of people have put their water together. I think a lot of people have secured their water heater. I think a lot of people have bought some extra canned food. But you know what? People don't like to make the family plan. This is where preparedness stops. If you're not actually making a family plan, you're not preparing. This is where preparedness culture starts. It's with having actual vulnerable conversations. It starts with a conversation like this, one that you'd rather not have. 
Sweetheart, what are we gonna do if you, me, and the kids find ourselves in five different places during this earthquake when the bridges are down and the phones are out? There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to that problem, and you cannot do it alone. You can't do it without your partner, you can't do it without your school, you can't do it without your neighbor, you can't do it without your friends across the river. This is why preparedness is a community activity, because that is an impossible scenario to tackle all by yourself. But you have to try to start putting those pieces together. The plan A for my wife and I, we know that my job is to get Zoe, and Jack, her job is to get Cyrus, and that we are to meet at home. That's the basics of plan A. And we also know that home has no foundation. Ah, oh, jeez, I can't, I bought three years ago. A home without a foundation, even I make mistakes, y'all. So we know that we have a plan B, the local park. We also know the local, local park might be in a liquefaction zone. Dang it. So we have a plan C. The basics of any family plan is knowing who has what responsibility, what is the timing, where you're going to meet, where's your backup, and what's the backup for your backup, and that you talk about it and you learn to talk about it. And people cry through this. That's why you're not having that conversation, because it's a really tough, vulnerable, emotional conversation where you have to finally imagine how difficult this is gonna be for you. But once you start having that conversation, a funny thing happens. You start feeling a lot better and your kids start feeling a lot better. This is the part we can't skip. And then after you've had that family conversation, you've practiced. You've practiced to have a wider conversation so that the next time that you come in to, so the next time you come into a room like this and try to bring up earthquake preparedness and someone throws that conversation at you, I've got a crazy uncle who's into that. You've got to fire back. You can't let earthquake preparedness conversations stop there. You have to say, you know what? Actually, I've got a robust kit in my home, in my car, and at work. I've got a family plan that my work coworkers are involved in, my best friend's involved in. And also, I'm even doing earthquake drills with my kids. Here, look. No, kids love it, I swear. You think your kids are scared of it? They're not. They're not. They absolutely freaking love it. Do earthquake drills with them. They get really used to it. And, but here's the gist. Here's the gist of the whole message, because you guys have heard a trillion preparedness messages before. But here's the most important part of what I want you to take away. People don't learn about preparedness from the Red Cross. People don't learn preparedness from emergency management. Preparedness is a behavior. We learn behaviors from each other. We learn behaviors from people we love, know, and trust. But we can only learn those behaviors if we see them. So if you build that kit, if you make that plan, the most important thing you can do as a preparedness advocate is let it be known. Because you are at the center of this movement. Because you can only you can reach the people that love, know, and trust you.